Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right. My Week Beats Your Year. Uh, Pat Thomas is the author of the book Did It, Jerry Rubin, an American Revolutionary, which is an oral and visual history of Jerry Rubin, the infamous Jerry Rubin, co-founder of the Yippies, anti-Vietnam War radical, Chicago 8 defendant, social networking pioneer. He's also the author of Listen, Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power, 1965-1975, and the co-curator of Invitation to Openness, The Jazz and Soul Photography of Les McCann, 1960-1980. Michael Heath is a music journalist, poet, and musician. He's written for many international magazines and online music sites, including XL. R8R, Maximum Rock and Roll, Shredding Paper, Tangents, Perfect Sound Forever, Pop Matters, New Noise, and Record Collector News. And he's also written a number of poetry chapbooks. Um, we're very glad to have them both. So let's have a warm welcome for Pat and Michael. Well, where do we start? <laughs> uh, so Mike did the the primary research, Mike uh, dug up all kinds of old issues of Cream Magazine and Melody Maker and Hit Parader. He also uh, found this amazing uh, thing that's on YouTube. It's Lou Reed in Australia. He arrives, he's getting off the plane, and he's kind of doing a bit of a Dylan Don't Look Back 1965 thing. He kind of out bobs Bob. So we're going to start off the evening with Mike playing... Uh, and introducing selected snippets, so you'll actually hear Lou. Uh, you'll hear Lou being Lou. Okay. Uh, before that, though, uh, just to uh, where where I come from, as far as being a Lou fan, uh, I've been a fan of his ever since I first heard, uh, since I was age thirteen in nineteen seventy one, hearing Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll played on uh, my local FM progressive rock station in Maryland. Uh, in 1972, if you owned an FM or was anywhere near an AM radio, it was difficult to avoid hearing Walk on the Wild Side. Uh, and by 74, uh, he was with uh, the Hunter Wagner crew and did Rock and Roll Animal, which as the, uh, uh, the great writer Mark Lehner once observed, uh, it was the perfect par excellence package for any inquisitive teenager uh, who was into rock and roll and especially into the more edgier rock and roll uh, to see this lawless, gender-fluid, gender human rock and roll animal. Uh, and so uh, I, I kept following Lou over the years. Punk came along, which certainly uh, owed a great debt to, uh, to his work. Um, into the 80s, following him as, uh, a, uh, recognizing him as a long-term artist, which of course, uh, any, with any creative spirit and uh, imagination is gonna have peaks and valleys from time to time. Uh, which, of course, means uh, there are going to be uh, certain uh, albums that come out that are maybe not substandard, but maybe not uh, as, as consistent as they could be with like, the occasional flashes of brilliance, which means uh, while you uh, may have to contend with uh, a rock and roll heart or growing up in public or mistrial, uh, it makes it all the sweeter when uh, he 
hits you with uh, Street Hassle or Blue Mask or New York on up to Ecstasy, which was probably a lot of people agree to be his last truly consistent album, although uh, I do have a guilty soft spot for some of the elements of Lulu. Um, so in any case, uh, I'm, we go into the 80s, I'm still listening to Lou, uh, listening to a lot of other stuff. Uh, I had the good fortune to uh, spend most of the 80s and early 90s working in independent and used record stores in the suburban Maryland, D.C. area. Um, occasionally radio DJing, writing for fanzines, uh, and reading fanzines, um, and including a particular uh, one uh, that was uh, turned out to be a fanzine in honor of your town's dream syndicate called John Coltrane Stereo News, which is where I met this dude. And from here? Oh, I just want to say, I know Lulu is controversial, but so we're not going to debate that tonight, but is there anyone in this room that actually likes mistrial? <laughs> All right, Bill. Fair enough. Uh, so let's, should we dive into some snippets? Absolutely. Um, the uh, first thing you're going to hear is uh, pretty much the earliest uh, interview in the book. Uh, it is preceded by uh, several forewords, one by myself, uh, the other by the great New York writer Luxant, and then uh, a prologue of sorts uh, written by the late Lance Loud. Uh, in an article he wrote for Hit Parader magazine in 1975 um, about his teenage obsession with the Velvets growing up in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, one of certainly the m m main reasons that he decided eventually to move to New York uh, with his best friend Christian Hoffman and thus form uh, the great art pop band, The Mumps. Uh, this is from 1972. Uh, it was uh, uh, Lewis being interviewed by a British journalist, music writer, and later on a radio host by the name of John Tobler. Uh, it's for a magazine that was around then called Zigzag. Uh, back in 72, uh, their focus was on West Coast rock and singer-songwriters and the like. Although later in the decade, uh, they became one of the great chroniclers of uh, what was going on in punk and new wave, thanks to the editorship of Mr. Chris Needs. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, this is from 72, and we're actually uh, going to hear a little bit. Uh, they seem to have a really good rapport, and in fact, uh, Tobler interviewed Lou several times over the uh, course of the decade, another bit you'll be hearing later on. Uh, in the meantime, this is John Tobler from 1972. Uh, Lou's first solo album has not quite dropped, and uh, at this point of the interview, uh, they're talking about what most musicians end up talking about, which is other musicians. Track two. Going back to this bit about straight ahead rock and roll, how do you feel about these bands that are apparently getting some sort of approval in the States, like the Flaming Groovies and Brownsville Station, the sort of ones who are reviving 50, 58 rock and roll type things? Well, I'm not into revivals. I mean, I like the actual old people who did it. Yeah. The revival stuff I don't go for too much. I mean, like, I, I love the Stones doing yeah. uh, Little Queenie and stuff like that because I, I think they do it but they do it very 70 mm. 70 ish you know yeah you'd still prefer to hear Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis do no oh you mean I like them both yeah yeah that, that's fair I mean uh, I like Chuck Berry's version of Little Queenie and I like the Stones version of Little Queenie I'd love to ha hear a record where the Stones back Chuck Berry up because I think he uses lousy backup bands yeah that's true on his records and uh, he needs he needs a group like uh, a rhythm section like Mick Jagger has on Little Queenie. I mean, mm. 
That would be a very tasty record that I would love to hear. Wouldn't you like to play with the Stones backing you? Would I? No. I, th I think we're into uh, <coughs> a different thing. Yeah, that, that's a fair answer. I mean, you, you can't separate things. The Stones are the Stones only with the Stones. Yeah. I should think. Yeah. It's difficult for me to conceive of other realities besides that. Um, now you you've also expressed likings for various people who, strangely enough, all seem to be on RCA at this <laughs> recently. Uh, perhaps you could express a few more opinions about people you like at the moment. You've said David Bowie and the Kinks, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I do like them. They, they both just signed with RCA, you know. No, I don't, I'm, I'm not pushing RCA artists. <laughs> no, I didn't think you would be, but yeah. it was a it was a strange thing, that, a strange coincidence. Who else are you into? Of, of the, do you like the Who, for example? Uh, let's see. Who do I like? Who do you listen to? That's perhaps more. Uh, hmm, I listen to the Stones. We all listen to the stones. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to think when all is said and done, you can always listen to the stones. They never kind of let you down. As far oh, as that's, I can that's true. That's um, a bit in the middle period they did. There's a song John Lennon did about his mother, <coughs> his father called goodbye, that I thought was just incredible. You know, the first time I heard it was on a jukebox. I didn't even know it was John Lennon, and I ran up the jukebox. I said, "What the fuck is that?" I said, my God, it's John Lennon. I said, that's fantastic. Real. I love that song. Um, in person, like, I thought Mitch Ryder's band was dynamite. I thought they were really, really, really good. Would you have gone to see them if they hadn't recorded one of your songs? Huh? Very well might have. You know? Uh, I wasn't aware of them until, you know, the thing. It was a totally new band, but when I heard what they could do, mm. you know? But I don't go out much. No. I mean, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I really I really thought they were a tight, rough rock and roll band, mm -hmm. which I always, always kind of liked. Yeah, yeah. that's the way to be. So, so that was Lou in 72. Uh, we're going to jump around a little bit in time, kind of Billy Pilgrim style, uh, for this uh, segment of uh, the evening. Uh, we're going to now jump to, uh, not that far, uh, 1973. Um, Lou is riding high on the surprise and perhaps uh, obviously deserves success of Transformer uh, under the tutelage of David Bowie uh, and also the also equally surprising success worldwide of the single Walk on the Wild Side followed by the singles Vicious and Satellite of Love. Um, he is on tour uh, the second for the second time with his Long Island high school band The Tots. They end up in Los Angeles uh, staying at the Beverly Wilshire, I believe, uh, and he is invited to uh, make an appearance on a rock station that was around KMET. Does anybody is anybody familiar with it? All right. Uh, there was a guy who had a show called The Electric Tongue. Uh, his name was Martin Perlick, and he, he had Lou on, and uh, they talked. A very wide-ranging um, discussion that they had together, and Lou was very together and very articulate and very funny. And uh, so this is from a later uh, section of their chat on KMET. 
in which Lou discusses uh, the fact that as it happens, Iggy Pop and the Stooges are also in town, staying at the same hotel, the Beverly Wilshire, and uh, about uh, the stir that they cause. And also, he, uh, and then he gets talking about uh, how he perceives his then sort of uh, new and ever-growing fan base at the time, circa spring of 73. So this is uh, Lou Reed on the Electric Tongue KMET. See, what I got to do is see, is see Iggy Pop, because right, he's in L.A. right now, and um, he just really demolished the uh, hotel we're staying at in the lobby last night. <laughs> Tore it up? Uh, no, just walked through it. Uh, and yeah, I just did that about an hour ago. It was they took one look and... If you'd seen what Iggy was wearing, I mean, no, I thought it was fantastic, and so did Danny, so it was really super, you know, and he's with his girlfriend, Sable, and uh, we all walked out, and the other, the people we passed just literally died, they could not believe it, they just could not. That's how? Oh, well, wearing a huge white bow and no top. A huge white bow and no top, and God, what was he? Sarang. Some kind of sarong or All right, the dog is very large, beautiful. very large uh, oh, scarf that right. you could wrap around your mid waist, you know, and then uh, sarang, knee boots, black, look like alligator knee boots, you know, with his blonde hair, you know, and makeup and everything, and these people just went mad. Yeah. It comes to the Beverly Wilshire. Yeah, they <laughs> really uh, just couldn't believe it. I heard they didn't want David Bowie at the uh, Beverly Hill, not the Beverly Hill, the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel. Why? Well, what is the future I've, of glitter then? I have heard stories about that, which may involve Le Petit Bonbons trying to uh, see David, you know, or something like that. But. Uh, Andy's not allowed in one of those hotels for the similar reasons. What are the reasons? Audacity. Or organizations of a certain sexual bent uh, attempt to uh, migrate to your room. I get it. Dressed in whatever regalia they happen to have that night, which terrifies the rest of the hotel staff when they see that coming in the door. They say, all right. <laughs> You know, we've tried to be lean with you people, you know, but if this is what you insist on bringing into our hotel, you'll have to stay at the Tropicana. <laughs> <laughs> Calling the Hyatt House for you, they're picking up your bags. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, here's your bag, sir. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It's a nickel bag to take it to the Hyatt House. What does the future of glitter? Is it this year's hula hoop? Is it... Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. I, I think. Is there a I think the, person the, that the potential is really, you know, fantastic. I mean, in the, it's in the Midwest. I've been out in the Midwest, and they're, uh, they're right there. I mean, the glitter people and pansexual people and transsexual people and uh, uh, drags and uh, you name it. And then there's the straight people, you know. And, the heads and they're all mixed together in this one amorphous crowd that is really kind of heavy to dig from the stage if you can see past the spotlight. Now tell about that. Look out, you see a 67 hippie and, and someone that looks like David Bowie next to him. And no, and that, that's not all that's going on. 
Are they doing sex there? No, that I haven't seen, but, um, you know, you see some guy on Quaaludes, mm. and he's making these incredible attempts to stand. <laughs> you know. And I'm trying to sing, sing a song, you know, as seriously as I can, and I'm getting to a verse, and I notice this guy with, who's, like, gone, right? You know, potential, God knows what. But, of course, I also know that, he'll, that he can't stand. And you watch him, and he gets in a crouch, and he's almost up, then too much. <laughs> Back down. You know, and the people in back of him are yelling, you know, get off me! You know, because he fell over to other people, you know, and they're on speed, and they're, they're going like this, you know, you know, and uh, then, then there's, you know, the acid people who were sitting there saying, oh, far out. This is really a heavy trip, man. You know, dig the colors, right? Like, I wear all black. What do you mean, dig the colors? You know, so... You know, there they are. And then there's the other people who are yelling at these people because they want to hear the song. Shut up! You know, and then there's the bouncers standing there who are these animals they found. Karate instructors you know, Standing there like this. Rawr! You know, and when one of the Quaalude monsters comes up, they blow on them. You know, and they, they shoot halfway back, you know. You know. Here comes one loop. You know, there he goes. Look at him fall. You know. yeah. That's what happened. Lou Reed fall out. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. So, uh, moving on to 1974. Um, Lou has put out, uh, at the t for what, at the time, what turned out to be his most commercial album, Sally Can't Dance, which is also one of the more contentious uh, albums in his catalog. Uh, he is uh, now touring with, uh, yeah, with the, his uh, band, basically the band On Sally Can't Dance. Um, it's a top ten record, and uh, he, he will uh, continue to badmouth it for the rest of his life and the rest of his career. Uh, but it takes him all over the world, including uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, he ends up at, uh, he comes in, it's his first uh, major tour of Australia, and he flies into Sydney, he's at Sydney Airport, and it is besieged by a, a, a rabid mob of TV and news uh, press reporters, all wanting to pick the brains and find out what makes this rock and roll animal tick. And this is what transpired. Track one. <laughs> You said a little while ago that you sing mainly about drugs, is that right? Sometimes. Why do you do this? Because I think the government's plotting against me. You like singing about drugs, is this because you like taking drugs yourself? No, it's because um, I can't carry when I go through customs, I figure somebody in the audience. And... Were you searched by our customs men for drugs? Oh no, because I don't take any. No drugs at all? Mm-mm. And yet you sing about them. I'm high you, on life. You want people to take drugs themselves. Is this perhaps why you sing about drugs? Oh, yeah, I want them to take drugs. Why is this? Because it's better than Monopoly. Why do you think your music is so popular, then? I didn't know it was popular. You've had two sellouts in Sydney before you've even come here. So it is popular, apparently. I didn't know that. Lou, do you think it's a decadent society we're living in? No. 
you describe yourself as a decadent person? No. How would you describe yourself? Average. It said, it said in your release that we were given this morning that you like lying to the press. Uh, why is this? Now you're doing it now. I didn't say that. The release did. Is it true? No. Is your antisocial behaviour just part of your show business gimmick? Antisocial behaviour? What's that? You seem very withdrawn. Introverted, you mean? Lee, you're a man of few words. Why is this? I don't have anything to say. Do you like meeting people, talking to people? Some. Do you like talking to us? I don't know you. Do you like press interviews in general? No. You shun publicity? No. You tend to keep to yourself? No. Why are you attending this one, eh? They told me to come in here. Is this just part of showbiz, is it? Necessary. I didn't. I'm not in show business. You're not in the entertainment game. The entertainment game? No. Do you do everything people tell you to? Sometimes. What message is it that you're trying to get across? I don't have one. Most singers do. They usually sing about something and have some kind of way of getting through to the people. Like who? Well, most <coughs> singers. Like who? Would it be right to call your music well, gutter rock? Gutter rock? Gutter rock. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's been called be underground rock and roll. What do you think about him now? Are you still friends with him? Oh, yeah. Has he been very important in your life? Did he make a big difference to you? Oh, he was everything. Still is. Lou, you sing a lot about uh, transvestites and sadomasochism. Um, how would you describe yourself in the light of these songs? What does that have to do with me? Well, could I put it bluntly, and pardon the question, are you a transvestite or a homosexual? Sometimes. Which one? I don't know. What's the difference? <laughs> wow. It's, that whole thing is on YouTube. It goes on for quite a while. That's fantastic. Uh, so, so, another year goes by. Uh, another... Uh, I believe Metal, no, Metal Machine was, might have been out by now, uh, but it's another year goes by, and he ends up back in Australia. Um, uh, this time it is a, uh, for, uh, he's part of a package tour that is sort of the predecessor to your um, Lollapaloozas and also to the uh, one that they have now in Australia, The Big Day Out. Uh, this will give you a, a, a sense of the time frame we're talking about and the sensibility of that time. The, the tour was called Star Truckin' 75. <laughs> and so, uh, so he's back in Australia, back in another airport in Sydney, and uh, ends up talking to yet another hapless reporter. Do you, do you remember, wait, do you remember who the other Star Truckers were off the top of your head? No. Okay. No. Uh, well, <coughs> what's it like um, seeing to Japanese people? Did you like it? Love it. I would live in Tokyo if I could. How did they react to you? That's why I live in Tokyo. They loved you? No. They hated me. <laughs> How did they show this hate? By giving me a discount. After putting the price up like they do in New York, that's why I like They gave you tickets a discount? Uh-uh. They gave me stuff I didn't declare a customs on discount. Um, the next big act coming into Australia is Marlene I'm, Dietrich. 
Well, we have a lot in common. Yeah, well, she's still singing. Do you think you'll be doing heroin at the age of 75 like her? No. <laughs> you are not. I don't believe you. Well, then stop asking. So you look a lot younger. Yeah, what's your sign? Uh, no. Who's that? Uh, nobody you know. Uh, doesn't travel with you? Sure he does. Listen, I read in one interview the same thing. Don't um, believe what you read. No, I don't. But is don't it true believe that you, what you see. Is it true that you uh, wrote Sully Can't Dance in the studio? If I say so, I guess. But did you? I wasn't there. You were there. No, I wasn't. Dougie did it. Are you happier as a brunette? Uh, are you happier as a schmuck? I'm no schmuck. I'm no brunette. Uh, you were blonde last time, though. No, I wasn't. You were? I was a bleached blonde. A bleached blonde. Trashy blonde. You looked younger as a blonde. Well, you look older. I'm not a blonde, though. I know, it's worse. Listen. You don't stand a chance. You think you no. dig your own grave. <laughs> I know, I'm not trying to fight you. I well, a ask us a, a nice, reasonable question instead of, you know, uh, who do you date? You know. Pardon? Right. What would you like us to ask you? Yeah. What would you give like us to ask you? ask you? Why don't you give me the answer and I'll repeat it? Listen. Um, do you like Berlin? I've never been there. The, the album you make. Oh, the album. Mm. It's a long time ago. I mean, I'm obsessed with metal machine music. Since you were here last time, you seem to have been working full time doing concerts all over. It is a lie. There are five of me going out, just like the drifters in the old days. There's no, you think there are? I know there are. Two of them are up there. We've been mutating. <laughs> Genetic damage. They never forgave us for Nagasaki. Sad. Do you like work performing? No. Why do you do it? Because I don't like it. Why do you do it? Because I don't like it. You like doing things you don't like? Yeah. That's paradox, isn't it? It sure is. I know. You're just a bundle of paradoxes. Well, when I'm faced with a paradox, I become paradoxical. Yeah. I actually spoke to you once when you were here last time, and you were very different. I know. You weren't in a press conference. I know. You weren't paradoxical. I won't tell there. if you don't. I just told. <laughs> so, so uh, jumping forward into the 80s, uh, by now Lou has uh, kind of sobered up. Um, gotten married to uh, the former Sylvia Morales uh, and uh, with that has uh, regrouped with uh, an amazing group of music uh, group uh, group of musicians including the uh, fabulous Robert Quine uh, on guitar um, and uh, he ends up in England um, and there uh, this comes from a uh, there was a in the wake of Walkman technology, there was a, a, a short uh, craze for cassette audio magazines to play in your Walkman while you're doing whatever. And uh, there was one in LA here called uh, Bang Zoom for a while. Uh, in New York, there was one called Telus that a lot of the uh, uh, downtown New York experimental people and people like Sonic Youth, Glenn Branca contributed to. Uh, in Australia, there was one called Fast Forward, uh, but in England, uh, there was one called SFX. Um, it lasted for about, uh, I think, maybe two years, and uh, their deal was that they would do interviews, they would have the occasional blindfold test of current music among, uh, about among uh, prominent British musicians, um, and uh, like that. Uh, so this is an interview that, he, that Lou uh, did in London 
for SFX Magazine in 1982. New York legend Lou Reed was in Europe last week promoting his LP The Blue Mask. Steve Buttrick confronted him. I ain't no Christian or no bone against any. I ain't no cowboy or a Marxist I ain't no criminal or reverend crippled from the right. Just your average guy Trying to do what's right I'm just your average guy Lou Reed, could you furnish us with a few biographical details Where you live now? What kind of life do you lead? What kind of life do I lead? I lead a very happy life in New York City And I have a place in the country I spend a lot of time with my wife Doing lots of things like going to the movies Or going to the theater And visiting friends Or going to great new restaurants that friends tell us about Or we go to the country and we ride our motorcycles And we ride snowmobiles Or go horseback riding And we also Listen and talk to one another Just an average guy I'll pay money for a picture of Lou on a snowmobile. Any price. <laughs> I'll, any price. I'll pay double for him on horseback. <laughs> so, so yeah, and we're going to hear a little bit uh, more of that uh, in a particular interview in a while. Uh, but meantime, uh, jumping back to 1980, um, by now uh, he's back uh, with John, hanging with John Tobler. Uh, by, by this time, John is uh, doing a regular BBC Radio 1 series called Rock On. And... Uh, the Growing Up in Public album is out, and uh, he gets to talking about uh, certain things that they discussed during their meeting in 1972, and um, about uh, his uh, sort of uh, controversial, more than controversial, uh, live album that had come out uh, a couple years previous, Live Take No Prisoners. And this is so, this is John Tobler and Lou Reed, BBC, 1980. No order starting with my own first. Has getting married been a, a, a major influence on your life? It's nice to have a trustworthy situation at home. Somebody to watch out for you, somebody who will tell you things, somebody who you know loves you, somebody that you can love back, and a security situation. It's good to know that you're covered and beyond just uh, friendship. I'm a great one for commitment. I like to look at centuries past, you know, when knighthood was in flower. I mean, I'm still a great one for that. And I, I think I found my flower, so it just makes me feel like more of a knight. I have a lot of people involved with me who put... Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, what I find interesting about that particular clip uh, is, uh, at that time, even though he just gotten he had just gotten married, um, in uh, contrast to how he uh, was in regards to talking about his personal life, he really didn't. In later years, he became increasingly more more and more guarded. Uh, so, for uh, someone like Tobler to that they had the rapport that they shared together, uh, for him to kind of bring that out of him, I thought was kind of uh, special. Anything to say? Oh, no. Just Ooh, okay. join Lou. <laughs> All right. So uh, further on into the uh, Rock On interview, and uh, yes, again, uh, he starts, he does uh, talk about uh, some certain mystical uh, practices and uh, schools of mystical thought that uh, he's always been interested in, and then 
uh, as I said before, he starts talk, uh, he does a talk a bit about the making and uh, reception to the live Take No Prisoners album. How do you view what you did with the Velvet Underground these days? Do you think it was as innovative as people have always considered it to be? I know that we set out to do certain things that didn't seem to have been done. But I know there are a lot of musicians around that aren't well known who are trying to do many of the same things. When I last talked to you, you told me a lot of stuff about how you were into the concept of white light and it, yeah I'm still interested in all that I was talking about uh, the arcane school which has to do with channeling white light and burning poisons out of body and all of this but it's nothing I'm not a member of a blood cult that's <laughs> because they don't have any <laughs> so now if you saw The Shining the movie The Shining that well, Teddy, Teddy's not here. Yeah. You, have you seen The Shining? Oh, there are scenes in there that are absolutely priceless. It's, uh, but it's a very unpleasant film. It doesn't have any socially redeeming qualities. That's that's the thing that bothers me about it, that I wonder about. Like, why was it made? Do you feel that live techno prisoners with any socially redeeming qualities? I certainly do. Why? In all due modesty, I think it's one of the funniest albums made by... You know, human. It must have been a great shock to your record company when you presented them with this record, which they couldn't... Shock is the word. Which is, shock would be an appropriate word to use, because there was no way to edit the things out that might make it... Um, <laughs> there was no way. There was no way you could save that record from... It's... Uh, it's um, on the other hand, though, it was also impossible for anybody to listen to it and not fall over laughing. So, you know, it be it was, you know, between laughs, they could say to me, but Lou. So we left it at that. But I was thinking calling out, but Lou. Yeah. I'll give you an example of the people I made this record for. We were playing in Montreal or someplace in Canada. It's, it's just so hard to keep track of all these things. See, that's the take no prisoners voice, you know, he slips into that. It's, it's just so hard. We've been so many places in this world. But you know, you know what I mean. That that kind of uh, don't you hate those entertainers who are so coy and don't oh, we just been to so many places. You know? But anyway, we were in I think it was Montreal playing this little hotel, or else it could have been Boston. One of the two. <laughs> they packed them in. Typically, oversold the house, and they throwing them in like so many sardines. And we're getting ready to go on. We get on stage, and it's the air conditioning doesn't work, and it's just unimaginable. I mean, people literally hanging from the ceiling. This guy's sitting at a table in front of us and he takes his head and goes, bam, bam, on the table with his head. And he yelled out at us, take no prisoners, Lou. Well. <laughs> Anything you want to say about that? No, just, I, that, that album, of course, is really, really funny. The opening of Sweet Jane and Certainly. Don't you hate Barbara Streisand at the Academy Awards? I just want to thank all those little people. <laughs> Fuck those little people. <laughs> <laughs>
There yeah, you go. Yes, well, yeah. It is eminently quotable, that's for sure. Yes, it is. Uh, so uh, one last bit, um, and then uh, uh, we'll uh, have a, some, a few uh, kind of surprises for you all. Uh, this is uh, going back to SFX in 1982. Um, things have been going on quite swimmingly uh, for a while uh, between Lou and this one particular reporter, Steve Buttrick until he decides to get a little too close to the bone uh, with regards to uh, Lou's creative in output, rather, sorry. Uh, and uh, as you might imagine, Lou responds accordingly. I think a lot of people might claim that you've wasted your career, that you haven't delivered as much as we might have expected. You think that's fair? I don't care. What do I care what they say? I mean, do you perform for an audience? Do you, I mean, do you think there's such a thing as a, a typical Lou Reed fan? I write for me. But you do like people to listen to the end product? Sure. But you don't mind what people say about you? Right. But you do like it when they like you? Right. <laughs> Which, are you a nice guy? Sometimes. You're getting close to finding out whether I am or not. <laughs> <laughs> All of this and more, ladies and gentlemen, in Mike we My Week Beast Your Year Encounters with Lou Reed, compiled by myself, edited by Mr. Pat Thomas, and published by Hat and Beard Press, Los Angeles. Uh, now uh, we have uh, a few kind of uh, surprise guests that we'd like to uh, bring into the conversation. And uh, Pat, you want to uh, introduce them? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with my buddy uh, Rex. Rex, are you in here? This Rex. is uh, Mr. Rex Weiner, uh, a veteran journalist, uh, the author of the amazing uh, rock and roll detective serial, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and uh, quite a fine gentleman. We're very privileged to have him uh, and uh, talking about his experiences with Lou. Rex. Yeah, just come on up. So, Rex, um, what year did you interview Lou? Roughly? In the 2000s, right? <clears throat> no. The 90s? No. I'm just imitating. Oh, okay. Um, well, first of you all... You didn't I, even interview Lou, did you? I want to thank you yeah. and Michael and JC for including me in that uh, anthology. Pleasure's ours, sir. It was 2006, and Lou was opening, he was one of the opening acts, I think he was the headliner for the Winter Olympics in Torino. And so my editors at uh, Rolling Stone Italia called me up in LA and said, uh, we really want to have a cover story on Lou and uh, would you fly to New York? And uh, sure, I said sure. And um, so uh, in uh, 2006, I found myself in Greenwich Village about a, a couple of blocks from where I used to live in a basement on West 10th Street. And there in an Italian restaurant that I used to um, want to afford to eat at, uh, I met Lou. And, you know, I... Uh, 
knew that he had an adversarial relationship with the press, shall we say. And so I was a, a bit nervous about it, but then again, he and I had had the same dealers back in the day, and uh, on the Lower East Side, you know, heroin was a, a sort of a common denominator. And uh, I want to pause here and say that I want you to buy this book, My Week Beats Your Year. But at the same time, my own book is here. One, <laughs> one more copy of the original adventures of Ford Fairlane, the lost rock and roll detective stories, which were first published in the LA Weekly in 1970 and uh, later became a, a colossal a debacle of a motion picture. Um, but uh, the particular reason I want you to buy this is because in here, Lou Reed plays a very key role, and I'll say only two things, um, Nazis and metal machine music. And two of my favorite things. So that's in here. And uh, one copy left, and it's signed, and it even has a, a signature a bookmark. So I walk into the restaurant, and there's Lou with a, uh, an entourage, his handler and his, I don't know, a whole bunch of people. And he looked exactly as I feared he would appear, which is that, you know, he was, a, he was approaching this interview as if it were a root canal. Um, well, the interview proceeded. He was very subdued, and... Um, you know, I just figured, well, he hates doing this, and he's really, you know, this is painful for him. <clears throat> but we managed to talk about many things, including uh, his guitar maker down the street, uh, down Bleecker Street, um, the um, fact that he and Laurie Anderson loved Italy, they loved going to, you know, touring there, being tourists, um, and we talked about... Um, uh, his love for martial arts and his teacher and you know it was a very uh, civilized and civil conversation at this point I was playing in a Velvet Underground inspired band then frankly who wasn't in the mid 80s and so at the end of the show I threw a tape of my band onto the stage I saw Rhodey pick it up and put it on an amp years later I found out from a student at the college that had been left in the dressing room. Oh well. It was around this time that WITR, the Rochester Institute of Technology radio station, asked me if I wanted to interview Lou by telephone. Boy, was I nervous and excited. I made the mistake of asking him questions that all could be answered yes or no. And of course, that's exactly what Lou did. I asked him, have you ever heard of a new band called the Dream Syndicate that has a Velvets-like sound? No. He was lying about that one as he had heard about them from somebody else, he'd even heard them and sa said they sounded like the Rolling Stones or something like that. I can remember getting very excited when Songs for Drella came out in 1990 because it was an actual John Cale and Lou Reed reunion. And then feeling a bit let down, but not surprised, when the editor of Option Magazine told me by the time they were photographed for their cover story, the two were no longer speaking. Further back, I got a kick out of a 1980s American Express ad he did. I still have my cardboard cutout of Lou from that campaign, except that he looked 100 times tougher than that brightly colored Honda scooter that he stood in front of. 
Plus, we already knew that a GPZ engine felt good between his thighs, so he wasn't riding a Honda. The release of the New York album was a revelation that an artist you love could grow old and still make amazing records, and even a concept album. It felt genuine as the city and Lou were interchangeable. In 1993, I just happened to be living in Germany when the Velvet Underground reunited and I saw that Hamburg, Germany show. It was good, but not great. It felt surreal, like it really wasn't happening, almost like I was watching on, a, on, a, on TV. It was more that I was overthinking it than that the band played badly. In my opinion, that officially released Paris show from that reunion tour is kind of weak, and you should search out just about any bootleg performance from any other city. It's 10 times better. I was asked by the German magazine Specs, sort of the spin magazine of Germany at the time, to fly to Berlin and interview Lou, John, Sterling, and Moe all at once. It was the only private interview they were granting in Germany. All the others were done press conference style with a lot of people all at the same time. I paced the hotel lobby for hours, went to the bathroom about a hundred times. Sterling walked in first, alone. He made me feel comfortable with some low-key conversation. John came in next and was remarkably friendly. Mo walked in very late with a hangover and said nothing. Lou decided to not even show up. Sterling, John, and I had a wonderful chat with the funniest moment being when John Cale realized for the first time that Sterling and Doug Yule and Mo had continued on briefly without Lou circa 1971. You played without Lou? How could you? He said he wasn't writing any songs. And I was saying, like, you know, let's, let's do some cover songs because we always like to talk about the music that we each loved. So we made a list of songs and we were going to do it. And then, then one time he called me and said, man, I, I just don't think I can sing. You know, it was like a month before he died. So I kind of figured that was it. But uh, he, was, he did this ad for some, I think it was a glasses company in Europe where he talked and he looked pretty good. And I thought, like, man, he's not going to die. And then like a month later, he died. he died. He died pretty suddenly. I mean, the liver just quit working, a new liver that he'd gotten. But um, there was a, I, just, I hate to interrupt, but there was a great onion cartoon, and it said, uh, liver, the liver, they interviewed the liver and said, I hate living with Lou, <laughs> or, or something like that. that, you know? that that's what he provoked in people, you know, he just, yeah, he, he yeah. had that edge to him. But I think he's one of the great uh, media savvy people of all time. As he told me once, he said, look, Warhol taught me how to do press. It's like you never back down, gee, where do we hear that? But, you know, you, you confronted them and you fought with them. And if they didn't like it, even better, because that means you get more press. And he kind of used that throughout his career to provoke people into, into doing things. I mean, that one record he did, The Raven, it got some of the worst reviews of his life. But he said, he said, this is my metal machine music, too. In like 20 years, they'll be teaching it in college. And you watch, they will be. So I, I loved him so much, and I, I can't wait to read all these interviews. The one interview, I was a journalist here in L.A. I just moved to town. I was at the L.A. Weekly, and he wasn't doing interviews, but I wrote his publicist, I believe Barbara Shelley, might have been at Arista, I can't remember. And, and I kind of dropped the Sterling thing, and she said, okay, Lou said he'll talk to you. So I'm at the L.A. Weekly one afternoon. I get this call. It's Sylvia going, I got Lou for you. And he gets on the phone. He goes like, now that you got me, what do you want? <laughs> wow. And I froze. I really did. I got. I just. I just couldn't do it, man. I just was too like scared, and uh, so I thought, like, uh oh, I hope he doesn't remember that. Which fortunately he didn't. <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. You're welcome. So uh, we've been doing this for a while. I think it's time to uh, break up the party.
One last uh, thing he talked about, the, you talked about the thing in the onion. There is also a really, really uh, sweet and funny uh, cartoon that uh, was done by a local artist named Brian Walsby after Lou died. That is uh, it's a, a cartoon of Lou in heaven wearing the robe and the wings and the halo. And he's saying, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And it's Lester Bangs behind St. Peter's desk. <laughs> and on that note. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, books for sale, of course. Thanks for coming. Thank you, folks. Cheers. Thank you. Enjoy the book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.